Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The 2022 Fife Honor Lecture in Folklore happened last week on the USU campus, and this year it featured two people, Stephen Hatcher, the Idaho Folk Arts Coordinator, and Damien Rodriguez, a Tejano musician who performed as a part of that lecture. Damon Rodriguez is one of the winners of the 2023 Traditional Arts Fellowships in, U- in Idaho. He and Stephen Hatcher have been working together for uh, quite a while. Stephen Hatcher is the state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at the Idaho Commission on the Arts. He spent a decade living in four countries and on as many continents. And overseas, his experience focused on the educational side of public folklore through contract positions awarded by the State Department and as an expatriate hired in local economy. Damon Rodriguez served in the military during the Vietnam era war and uh, Iraqi freedom. When he came home, he used the GI Bill to attend the College of Southern Idaho and Idaho State University, majoring in mass communications journalism. Always interested in music. At one point, he was invited to sing at a Mexican cultural fiesta in Idaho Falls. He says his eyes were open. When he saw a live mariachi band, he decided to change his focus from English music to Mexican traditional songs. And David Rodriguez has also worked as a reporter and as an activist. Here's the first part of my conversation. Uh, David Rodriguez and Stephen Hatcher came into studio last week when they were in town to give uh, that lecture. Let me start with uh, Stephen Hatcher. You're the state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at the Idaho Commission uh, for the Arts. What uh, what do you do there? That is true. Um, There I am charged with the task of supporting the folk and traditional arts throughout the state. Typically, that means by either direct funding through grant programs, apprenticeship programs, uh, things like that, or um, or public programming like we're doing here, uh, and uh, like the Mexican Music Project that brought us here, doing field work, uh, exhibits, books, um, any sort of public, you know, public outreach, public programming. Mm-hmm. Tell me a little bit about your background. What drew you to uh, to folklore? Well, uh, what drew me to folklore was um, stumbling into a introduction to Western American folklore class taught by Jan Brunvand at the University of Utah uh-huh. many, many years ago, uh, and then taking a Native American folklore class with Meg Brady also there, and uh, sort of falling in love with that, and both of them told me that I could continue my my study uh coming up here uh to the cache valley and studying up here so i i did that and studied with barry and uh steve saporin barry tolkien and steve saporin um and had a great time as as well as genie um and yeah from there it was it was history yeah <laughs> did you get involved in seeing the sea shanties no, so the, the, no, Bar- I never, Barry always never did, yeah. did that with Barry. Yeah, I've, yeah. I've heard them a lot, but yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't wasn't in his singing group. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So um, your biography says that you you spent a decade living in four countries and four continents. So it's where that is true. Uh, started off in Mexico, in fact, in Guadalajara. Mm. Um, before coming back to uh, Sun Valley area, Ketchum, to, to have my son. Uh, then we took off again and went to Almaty, Kazakhstan. From there all the way down to Santiago, Chile, and then um, Geneva, Switzerland, before returning home for a bit and kind of stumbling into my position with the state. Yeah. 
So what were you doing in those, in those places? Well, uh, the technical term for it, um, as given by the, the State Department, is called a trailing spouse. So I was the spouse of a Foreign Service officer. And um, basically a stay-at-home dad raising our son. But then, um, you know, every time an embassy found out that there was an American folklorist, um, you know, uh, serving there, living there, they would employ me, oh, you know, to go talk to other diplomats, give presentations on American folklore. You know, everybody all over the world loves cowboys and Indians. And so I could easily talk about cowboys and Indians and, and folklore and folk life in general. With from an American viewpoint, so mm-hmm. I turned into a sort of a diplomat myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, interesting. So Mexico, Kazakhstan, Switzerland, and where else? Uh, Chile. Oh, in Chile, that's right, Chile. Uh, so what? What kind of reaction did you get? What What questions were people most interested in? <laughs> well, again, they loved cowboys, mm-hmm. um, and and I I before traveling overseas, I did some work at the uh, Western Folklife Center in Elko, Nevada, that of course hosts the giant cowboy poetry gathering. So I came armed with, um, you know, plenty of cowboy poetry, uh, you know, recordings of, of poems and, and music and things like that that I could play for him. It was, it was really nice in, in Kazakhstan because that's a big horse culture too. You know, they're the, they're the people that actually domesticated the cow and the horse and, and that. Um, so they have a real love and their own sort of cowboy poems and songs that go along with their culture there. So they were really fascinated by that. Um, but otherwise, yeah, it's you know the 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 American the American West, the Intermountain West, is a pretty easy place to talk about to people that have never uh, been here. So it was, you know, I I went overseas thinking I'd do all this great field work, you know, uh, in 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 Kazakhstan and and you know Chile and all these places, doing my own field work, documenting the culture there. But then everybody wanted me to talk about, you know, the place where I'm born and raised and and, and know and love the best. So, uh, you know, it became I kind of continued what I already what I already knew. Mm. Um, what, what is it about the American West, do you think, and the cowboy culture and all yeah. that? It's so <laughs> yeah. fascinating. It seems like it fascinates just about everybody. It sure does. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, I think it's I think it's the you know, I think it's a lot of the cliches that we already know it's this sort of independence it's the wide open spaces um it's kind of the you know rough and ready rough and tumble kind of kind of culture uh that people really enjoy plus they they kind of like the look they you know they like the hats they like the boots uh they like the way people look out west and uh, and act and uh um and then you know, in, in especially Mexico, but also in Chile, and, and like I said, Kazakhstan. You know, there there's a real there's a real long-standing, time-honored horse traditions there as well. So, um, you know, it's easy it's easy to connect with people that have the similar similar sort of loves mm. uh, and traditions. Well, let me turn to uh, Damon Rodriguez. Um, get a little bit of your uh, biography. Your 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 parents, because the extended family, um, moved uh, from Texas to Idaho. What uh, what occasioned that that move? Well, as you know, in Texas, it was 
pretty hard times during the 50s and the 40s. You know, if you were, you know, of uh, Mexican descent, you the only jobs you were suited for were field work and other type of work that nobody else wanted. And so uh, my uncle was came to Idaho and he met uh, he met some LDS people. And they said, come on over here. We got a lot of work if you want to work. And so, and anyway, my uh, uh, uncle, he, uh, he called the rest of the family. He said, there's a lot of work over here. So uh, grandma and grandpa, mom and dad, all my uncles loaded up the truck. And then we came to Burley, Idaho. And we started working in the fields. And uh, I remember as a young man, we uh, we stayed in labor camps in in the area, and then uh, when it was time to go to school, everybody says, you know what, we better stay here instead of moving the kids around. So we all uh, stayed in Burley, and we attended school, and we all graduated from from the local high school. Mm-hmm. Uh, you you say I'm reading that uh, biography that you uh, sent over. Uh, you say that you. Your parents taught you the value of hard work, so you, you saved some money up for school clothes, but you didn't buy school clothes. What did, uh, what, yeah, what did you buy? I worked all summer long, <laughs> uh, hoeing beets and you know thinning beets and weeding beets. And in those days, a hundred dollars was a lot of money, especially when you're making so much, like fifteen dollars an acre during that time. And so, I went to uh, I bought my own clothes for high school. One day I went to uh, went uptown and I stopped in a music store. And when I walked in, this guy was playing the guitar, and I was just so fascinated by it. And he says, "Yeah, it's only hundred dollars." And I says, "I'll take it." <laughs> I got home. Mom was mad. Dad says, "You better learn it." And so, and the rest is history. Mm-hmm. Um, so you had a lot of uncles who would play Mexican music, right? But that's oh, not, yeah. At that point, that's not what you wanted to do, right? Yeah, well, I grew up surrounded by music. All my uncles on my mother's side, all my uncles on my dad's side, they all played guitar. And whenever we had a fiesta or party, all the guitars came out, and everybody wanted to sing. There was just no escaping it. And so I just, yeah, I had, I had some interest in it, and I dabbled in it, but... I didn't get serious until I bought my first guitar. Yeah. So uh, you went to the military. Yes, sir. Served for uh, quite a few years. I, I served four years uh, mm-hmm. as uh, active duty in the Air Force. In the Air Force, And yeah. then the rest of the years I served in the Idaho Air National Guard. I retired as a master sergeant. I'm a veteran of two wars. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, I should back up. Uh, you, you say that you, you credit music with giving you confidence oh yeah kind of shy but the music took you on stage well here's the thing you know when you're when you're a person of a different color people treat you different you know you know in those days you know he's mexican you know in those days it was a they used it as a derogatory word but now it's it's who we are you know i i am mexican Born on this side, yeah, of the border, yeah, and because my her- my heritage and my culture, mm-hmm. that's who I am, and so you know when when you, when you get picked on a lot or you get name called a lot, you kind of withdraw, mm-hmm. and that's what happens. And so uh, once I learned the guitar, I started performing, and 
all of a sudden, I'm out. I liked it. I enjoyed it. Yeah. You know, and I have sung for, I've sung for the governor. I've sung for big festivals. I've been invited to uh, uh, perform in uh, for some. Uh, Famous people uh, like Lynn Anderson. I opened up for her at one time, mm, wow. and so it's uh, it, it's been good to me. Yeah, very good. I, I can't escape it. Yeah. So you see, you, you had an experience. You, I mean, you, you were kind of surrounded by some of this music. It, did, it sounds like it didn't take in a big way until you saw a live mariachi band. Oh, what happened? Well, here's the thing. I uh, learned the guitar, but I was playing uh, top 40 songs. Mm -hmm. I was playing English songs. Mm -hmm. I was playing English songs, and and I thought, okay, I'm playing the songs. And I even had a band, and we were playing. We were traveling around to different nightclubs and just playing. Then one day I went to Idaho Falls. There was a mariachi band, and they started playing. I thought, oh, man, this is my music, because they were singing beautiful songs in Spanish, boleros, uh, cumbias, rancheras. They were just, uh, and from that day, I learned my first mariachi song, and then now I got a repertoire of mariachi <laughs> songs. And then I incorporated that with uh, Tejano music. With Tejano music is more my thing now, you mm -hmm. know, but because Tejano music is, is, is American born music mm -hmm. it uh it takes mexican music like mariachi music uh, banda conjunto and then they add a jazz flavor country flavor mm -hmm. blues flavor and it's just so different you know that's why i say it's american bass because they it uses all the influences to make it a little bit jazzier if you listen to mexican music and tejano music you'll go wow there is a difference. And Tejanos have, we have our own culture. We speak two languages. We speak English and Spanish. We live, uh, you know, the culture Mexican, the culture American. And we live in two worlds. You know, we have to like John Wayne and Vicente Fernandez, <laughs> Christina and Oprah. So mm -hmm. it, 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 it's, it's the best of both worlds. Mm -hmm. Uh, expand on that a little bit. You live in two worlds, you say. Um, it's illustrated by the music, I guess. Mm -hmm. um, but it's the best of both worlds, you say. It is, because uh, the only thing that separates people is the language. If you go to a party or anywhere, all the Spanish speakers, they don't speak English, are all in that bunch over here. All the English speakers are over here on this side, and there's no mingling between the two because of, because of the language barrier. I can go either way. Mm -hmm. That's yeah. my two worlds. Yeah. Uh, you say you, for the last five years, um, last several years, I guess, you've given free guitar lessons to uh, school-aged children at your local church. Why do you do that? I, I do that because... Uh, for, it started because we needed more uh, musicians to sing in the choir, and nobody knew how to play an instrument. And so I, 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 I approach uh, uh, the um, father from the church, and he, I told him what I wanted to do, and he goes, how much are you going to charge him? I said, nothing. I, I will do it. I'll do it free of charge. All I need them to do is practice. If they don't practice, then I'm done. And so that's what happens. I started out. I start out usually with about ten students, and I'll end up with two or three. And I, my students to this day that I have taught are, are playing in church right now, mm -hmm. and they're doing singing their own songs. 
Mm-hmm. And so it, it, it's something that anything that involves the church, I get asked to sing at weddings, funerals, and I don't charge for anything for the church, mm-hmm. you know. But it, the thing is, for friends invite me, I go, oh, I don't want to charge you. And they go, will you take a donation? I go, mm-hmm. donation's good. That's good gas money. <laughs> <laughs> so what do people want you to sing at those events? Well, I'm one of those musicians that can play just about anything mm-hmm. i've played you know top 40s country jazz rock orchestra mariachi conjunto i i whatever they want to hear that's what i that's what i, I play a lot of times they'll say hey do you know this song i said no but i can learn it real quick mm-hmm. and and that and a lot of times if you know one song that they like you've won them over already mm-hmm. yeah you say our cultural history is told in song and verses and in teaching. So tell me about song, cultural history and song. Well, uh, Pancho Villa, let's go back to Pancho Villa. He had a song that everybody recognized for the revolution. It's called La Cucaracha. La Cucaracha, La Cucaracha, ya no puede mm-hmm. come. That was, that, that was a song that identified Pancho Villa. And that's how we relate that song was to the revolution. Uh, revolution. And then, Cesar Chavez came in, and uh, he used de colores as as a as the mantra. I think would you say as the main song that he would de colores de colores, and it's one a song that you identify with that period, and that's how we we talk we talk about our history. And a lot of us, you know, if we hear a song, we we can go back to that moment in time when when it was uh, played and why they were playing it. Mm-hmm. Right now in the Tejano industry, there's a song called Las Nubes. And that's the Tejano hymn song. Everywhere you go, the, the, it's like learning Stairway to Heaven on the guitar. You gotta <laughs> know how to play Las Nubes. <laughs> Very good. You're listening to Access Utah, I'm Tom Williams. And we're talking with uh, Tejano musician, Damon Rodriguez. And Stephen Hatcher, the state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at the Idaho Commission on the Arts. They gave the 2022 Fife Honor Lecture last week on the OSU campus. We'll have more of that conversation following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with folklorist Stephen Hatcher and Tejano musician Damien Rodriguez. They jointly gave the 2022 Fife Honor Lecture in Folklore last week on the USU campus. On that occasion, they came into the UPR studios for conversation. Uh, Stephen Hatcher uh, spent uh, 10 years or so uh, abroad and worked, in fact, uh, as a folklorist uh, in Mexico, Kazakhstan, Switzerland, and Chile. Damon Rodriguez served in the military. When he came home, he used the GI Bill to attend uh, college. Uh, always interested in music, he was playing English music, but uh, then he saw a live mariachi band at some point and changed his focus from English music to Mexican traditional songs. Damon Rodriguez also has worked as a reporter and as an activist. I want to turn back to uh, Stephen Hatcher. Um, before I get to uh, you know your, your role and, and some of the great folklore you're preserving, I, I would assume that's part of your job at, in Idaho. I want to uh, go back to Mexico, Kazakhstan, Switzerland, Chile. You were a spouse of a diplomatic person, right? Yep, correct. 
And it, it remind people early in the program, you said that uh, you went out thinking you were going to do field work, but instead what people wanted was for you to tell them about American folk life, That's right? That's correct, yeah. Um, but but I, I want to know what uh, what stood out to you in, in just in life personally and maybe in the folklore uh, from those four places, maybe starting with Mexico. Yeah, well, without getting too political, um, we were there during um, during the Bush years, uh, where there was you know a, a war going on overseas, and, um, and and what stood out to me uh, often was that uh, you know so so it was a, it was a difficult time to be in some of those countries because of the wars and because of you know the turmoil going on at home um and it, but what stood out to me in in every country from mexico kazakhstan chile and and even switzerland even a place like switzerland um was how um how, how do i term this how how uh how necessary it was uh for people to to believe in in the United States is that is that does that make sense you know they still had even though our country at the time seemed like it was in shambles uh, even people in Switzerland you know really believed in this idea of of America as a place where you know things happen where you where you can succeed uh, that it influences the world, it influences the the tides and the shift of the of world politics and economics, and, and that 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 made that made uh, you know that made a lot of sense to me, and I was very proud of that. You know, um, and, and and it goes beyond you know being a rich American or, or whatever. It's the sense of kind of a stability, kind of a, you know, an inspiration. Um, again, without getting too, I don't want to get too political, but, um, you know, even the poorest of the poor countries like like Kazakhstan or, or, or Mexico, as well as the richest of the rich countries like Switzerland saw, again, as I said, America as this, as this singular idea that they felt that they really believed in, even though it seemed like as an American, it seemed like our politics were inside out. We were in a lot of trouble. Um, things were crumbling at the seams, this sort of things. And, and you know, that happened when we were living in those countries. It happened in, in countries where we would travel. Uh, you know, people saw America as this particular place, mm-hmm. an idea of a place that was very important to them. Does that connect up at all? This this idea, this ideal, I guess, right? Does that connect up at all with the with the folklore you were American folklore, Western folklore that you were presenting to them? Well, I think so. Yeah, I think so. You know, there's this. I guess there's this kind of typical, um, again, you know, cliche version of the American West and and America uh, in general. This kind of John Wayne and independent kind of person, and whether or not that's true I, I don't I don't know if that really matters um, that was just kind of the form that it took uh, in the eyes of you know a, a, a tapatio from Guadalajara or, or a Kazakh um, and so yeah to be you know one of those 
one of those people from that uh, you know that that certain that very particular place in America that they that they really think of when they think of the states I think was meaningful was meaningful to them uh it, it, you said that uh, you know you were in these areas you started out as a diplomatic spouse but as soon as the state department learned that you're a folklorist I guess they put you to work out there what what were they trying to do with with this public folklore, yeah, well, it was kind of cultural diplomacy. Um, I really see it that way. Um, again, I, you know, a lot of those, some of those years when we were abroad was really difficult time back mm-hmm. at home, and we did not have a good standing, you know, with a lot of our neighbors uh, and and allies. Um, and so, I think it was good to have someone in these countries that could talk about sort of, you know. The real meaningful, the cultural values of of our our country, um, not again, not politics, um, not economics, but you know the things we hold deeply in our, in our country, and I think those come down to these kind of cultural values that mm-hmm. that uh, Damien is is talking about, and mm-hmm. um, these are the kind of, these are the kind of things that build that idea that I referred to of of America that people see. You know, they don't. They can they can look over the politics in ways that we can't in our own country because we're so deeply you know immersed in it. But but the people in Kazakhstan or wherever really see those cultural values much more so I think than than the crazy politics that that go on in in our country. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was really meaningful to to me. Mm-hmm. Um, so to have me there could speak to other diplomats and and politicians as well as school kids you know um as well as school age kids about those cultural values and those deeply rooted cultural traditions whether it's music or saddle making or native americans or you know native american beadwork or whatever um that was a good way to get beneath <laughs> this the surface of whatever was going on up here with you know po- politics and wars and economics um and really and really sort of uh sort of engage with with the public mm. i would imagine uh, there, there's if you get beyond politics get to cultural values there's always commonalities i would guess absolutely and yeah, i you yeah. know as I, as i said i think that connection with the horse the horse culture mm-hmm. um was was really important um music is really important like i said they have a whole their own sort of cowboy poetry uh, in both in Chile, in Mexico, in uh, in Kazakhstan. Um, you know, it sounds nothing like our you know Western music or whatever, but um, they're talking about the same stuff. They're talking mm-hmm. about love of the land, uh, love of these beautiful creatures. You know, the horses. You know, maybe these love affairs uh, where they ride off. You know, in the sunset on a horse with the love of their life, this kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's very important and, and, and much easier to connect with people mm-hmm. when you're talking about love and, and beauty and landscape than it is politics and, mm-hmm. you know, economics. I was going to ask you about cowboy poetry. So you, know, you mentioned a lot of visuals, right? That, that could translate easily, right? A saddle, yeah. beadwork, whatever. Uh, music could could more easily translate what about the cowboy poetry and then you just mentioned that they have their own 
I guess. Yeah, correct. And and it's a lot of the same themes, you know. It's uh well, there's a lot of humor embedded in it, but a lot of, you know, love of landscape, love of country, love of the the geography of where you're from, the work that you do while horseback, you know, herding, um this this kind of thing. So it's, you know, it takes on the meaning comes f- comes from that comes from that imagery of of whatever it is that that sort of revol- revolves around uh, life life on the back of a horse you yeah know? yeah so now you um, you're the state folklorist right um, the, you know there state state folklorists came before you and will come after you as well what what do you, I, I'm interested in that you've had this unique experience out there in those countries right you. You think that informs your work back in Idaho? Oh, no, no question. Yeah, I didn't have any of that sort of broad, you know, forest from the trees look until I went and lived overseas. Um, and then it became very apparent very quickly how, how really meaningful, you know, it is. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a son of the American West and the Intermountain West, born and raised in Colorado and schooled here in Utah and Idaho and so that was kind of my my world you know and I I feel deeply connected to the to this landscape and the culture and and then to be able to uh step away from that and see that yeah yeah those people in Kazakhstan they they feel the same way about you know life where where they live you know even though it's you know it's a totally different totally different ball game over there and they face you know they uh, you know what they deal with is is something else completely than what you deal with here but um yeah they still have that similar love of of of, again landscape and culture and then uh you know while living in um geneva i had the opportunity to represent the american folklore society at the United Nations and uh, in in Geneva at the uh, at the World Intellectual Property Organization, WIPO in the UN uh, in Geneva, as well as the UNESCO in in Paris. And I was able to go to these you know these meetings and these giant auditoriums filled with um you know nation states of of uh uh, politicians and lawyers and other diplomats where they were all trying to sort of pound out and put together a treaty to a a global treaty that would protect um traditional forms of knowledge traditional cultural expressions which is what essentially what we call folklore um and genetic resources as it as it pertains to that and then so again to to you know to have that opportunity to 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 see the the world revolve around this you know this this thing that we call folk life or folklore that i studied here at utah state uh, was just yeah it was revolutionary i mean you know there were you know, uh, tribes from Colombia and deep in the Amazon, you know, that were in these rooms, you know, uh, you know, that were tired of people like Monsanto and these other large corporations coming down and stealing their, you know, their, their, uh, their not only traditional 
forms of knowledge and understanding about the natural world, but um, uh, and then take and then making money off this, and you know, and there are no reparation, you know, to to to, to be sitting in this room as as some you know folklore student from from uh, Utah, you know, is is a different kind of education altogether. Yeah, and and that allowed me to come back to Idaho and take my position and sort of really see Idaho as a part of that big system, right? (laughs) Rather than Idaho as its separate, you know, state within the Intermountain West kind of thing. But Mm -hmm. see Idaho and and what we deal with at Idaho uh, as a part of that larger system of of cultural values and and belief systems and, and things like that. You're listening to Access U Time, Tom Williams. We're talking with uh, Steve Hatcher, who is state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at the Idaho Commission on the Arts, and with Tejana musician Damon Rodriguez. Following a break, we'll uh, have Damon Rodriguez tell us a bit about uh, his life as a reporter and activist. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams. Every year, uh, the the Fife Honor Lecture in Folklore happens, and uh, the 2022 version happened last week on the USU campus. This year, it featured two people. Stephen Hatcher is state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at Idaho Commission on the Arts, and Damien Rodriguez is a Tejano musician. And uh, last week, they came into studio when they were in town for that uh, lecture, and here's the final part of our conversation. We turn back to uh, Damon Rodriguez. Um, so, reading from your biography here, we've talked about you as a musician. I want to get into you. You, you have a whole other life as a as you stumbled into as an activist, as an advocate, uh, which partly started. Uh, so, you, you studied journalism, right? I, I, and and then you got a job as a reporter at the South Idaho Press, but you gave them a stipulation. Tell me about that. That I would not write anything negative about Latinos. I wanted to write nothing but positive stories because it, I didn't want to cover the, the arrest. I did not want to cover the, the crime scene. And uh, they said, yeah, uh, thank goodness that... Uh, that uh, his name was uh, Scott, last name was Scott, and uh, he was a reporter in uh, Corpus Christi. So he understood about the Latinos and how we felt about stuff like that. So he said, no problem, just come on in. So from that day on, I started uh, writing stories about positive things, about, uh, you know, People at, working at NASA, people starting their own business, people who are movie stars now from from Burley, you know, mm-hmm. and so everything. And to this day, I still do that. Mm-hmm. To this day, this day, uh, the community says, "Hey, I just bought this uh, business and it's doing really well." I just wrote a story about this uh, guy. Uh, he he has a business in Burley. But his part-time, he's a Mexican actor in Mexico. So he says, I go there for two weeks, do my do my stuff, then I come back. <laughs> and that's what he does. And so that kind of story. And then I wrote a story about this one uh, guy about he's a musician. How it's interesting because he's from uh, Sonora, Mexico. And he was able to listen to uh, American music on this side of 
uh, in the United States, and he fell in love with Uriah Heep, Deep Purple, <laughs> you know, Pink Floyd, all that, and that's what he wanted to play. So he learned how to play the the rock bass, but he got to Idaho and. The, Me- the Mexicans here, they didn't want to play rock. They wanted to play Mexican music. So he got with me, and that's what we did, just to get, keep it off just to keep it off his back. <laughs> you know, a lot of fun. So as a reporter, you um, actually found out about a story. A young Mexican man got caught in an auger. Oh, yes. I and uh, so t- tell me how that leads to some, some work that you did. The year was 1996. Uh, I'm not going to mention his name, but... Uh, There had been students from uh, Boise, and there had been local leaders in the area who were trying to find ways to get farm workers workman's comp. Farm workers did not have any workman's comp at all. And so what we're trying to get together, and unfortunately, things have to happen in order for, for you to make things happen. There was a young man who was working on a farm. They were drilling a hole, and it, it took his arms off, part of his leg. He had no workman's comp. So they were living on donations. They were, you know, basically had no help. So pretty soon, and I followed the story from the beginning to end. I was writing the stories about how we got in there, and, and then the very last story that I wrote was... Farm workers get workman's comp. What happened was that the senators and the representatives from uh, from uh, Boise started calling me and say, "Send me your story. Send me your story. Uh, what do you think about this?" And so, yeah, even though it was a it was a, a unified effort between the Latino community, I played that much part of it, and it and it passed. Mm-hmm. And to this day, there. Farm workers have workman's comp. Mm. Um, you also say, this is very interesting, so you retired. Yes. But on your first day of retirement, you were approached uh, about uh, helping <laughs> to uh, to launch a Spanish-speaking radio station. Yeah. Well, wh- while I was in the Army, I, uh, I, I was trained as a broadcast journalist. I also have a, I graduated from Idaho State University with a degree in, in mass communications. So I had experience in that area already. So I, I retired on uh, October 1st, 2012. And then uh, October 3rd, 2012, I'm sitting at a, at, a, at a cafe and this guy approaches me. He says, you're Damian Rodriguez? And I go, yeah. He goes, my name's Ruben. I'm the owner of the radio station. I heard you come with good qualifications. I said, what you got? And he told me and so, Basically, they, they're just starting from the ground up. They had no real idea how things work. So, yeah, I put reg- rules and orders and regulations in order, what, what the FCC required, what mm-hmm. the FCC s- says you can do, what you can do. And because it was a nonprofit radio, you know, following under 5013C, we, uh, the, we were under different rules, you know, and so we had to be very careful, especially it was a brand new, it was the first year that the radio ran. And 10 years later, I'm still there. Oh, you're still there? Still yeah, there, it's still running, there. and uh, our successes are just, I, they're immeasurable. Yeah, wonderful. 
Well, we're out of time uh, here. Um, we've been talking with Stephen Hatcher, state folklorist and director of the Folk and Traditional Arts Program at Idaho State Commission on the Arts. And we've been talking with, uh, I guess, musician. Was that the, the title you most? Yes, I, I'll take that. Like, the Hanna uh, Musician. <laughs> Damien Rodriguez. Yes, sir. And they jointly are giving the, uh, or did give the uh, 2022 Fife Honor Lecture at Utah State University. Um, thank you both for coming in. Appreciate it. Thanks for your interest, Tom. It's yeah. great to be back in Nogan. Thank you for having us. Thank you. It's the Beehive Archive on Utah Public Radio. I'm Megan Weiss. The story of water in Utah is complex, and rifts often arise in unexpected places. The fact that water sustains us all can sometimes be easy to overlook, but ultimately, it's an issue we cannot ignore and to which we must constantly adapt. Find out more after this. I'm Jody Graham, Director of Utah Humanities. Beehive Archive is brought to you on Utah Public Radio by Utah Humanities with the generous support of the Lawrence T. and Janet T. D. Foundation. We are proud to partner with community organizations to tell Utah stories and hope you will tune in each week for the Beehive Archive. Welcome to the Beehive Archive, a two-minute look at some of the most pivotal and peculiar events in Utah's history. Utah is literally split down the middle when it comes to water. The Great Basin Watershed lies to the west, and the Colorado River Basin to the east. Even before this place was called Utah, the scarcity of water has always required us to negotiate with the land and with each other. The value of water, for example, depends on the eye of the beholder. Utah's recreation industry relies on river-carved canyons, wild rapids, and our famous powder snow. Yet what we now recognize as natural treasures did not seem particularly valuable to the early settlers. In their attempts to harness water for agriculture, Red Rock Canyons prone to flooding were obstacles, not assets. And who controls the water? Our extensive system of dams were constructed for storage and hydropower by the federal government. But in the 1960s, Utah Governor Dewey Clyde sought to wrest control from the feds by channeling public hydropower through a local private utility. But the government had borne the costs of building the dams and accordingly wanted to collect the revenue. Governor Clyde faced a formidable opponent in Floyd Dominey, commissioner of the Bureau of Reclamation, who won the day. The federal government continues to supply public hydropower to Utahns. Dams in Utah have also provoked nature lovers. In the 1950s, the burgeoning environmental movement drew national attention to Utah's scenic canyons and wildlife as dam builders proposed to inundate them. The perception of environmentalists as outsiders led to clashes between rural and urban water users. But not all environmentalists are city dwellers. It was local duck hunters, after all, who scored one of the state's biggest conservation wins by helping establish the Bear River Migratory Bird Refuge. The story of water in Utah is one of conflict, certainly, but also adaptation. Agricultural expert and LDS apostle John Whitstow proclaimed in 1928, the destiny of the earth is to be subject to man. While many have wished for this to be true, the history of our state seems to demonstrate that Water always has the last word. As long as humans continue to live here, we need to find a way to get along with Mother Nature. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss. Find sources and past episodes of the Beehive Archive at utahumanities.org. For the Beehive Archive, a production of Utah Humanities, I'm Megan Weiss.